Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Thanks for coming, everybody. My name is John O'Brien. I'm a professor here in social research and public policy. Um, and it's great to see you tonight. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks to the Institute for having me. Um, my talk tonight is called Keeping It Halal, The Everyday Lives of Muslim American Teenage Boys, which is also the title of my recently released book, which is available in the lobby, Amazon, your local bookstore, et cetera. Um, so this is a book based on three and a half years of ethnographic fieldwork that I did with a group of Muslim American teenage boys in a large American city, which is supposed to remain unnamed. With a little detective work, you can probably figure it out. Um, but I'm supposed to keep my subjects and my locations confidential, so I'm going to do that. Uh, so this is a group of young men that I got to know who attended a mosque together, a Muslim youth group together, really grew up together uh, in some years after 9-11. So this fieldwork was done a while ago now, uh, 2007 to 2010. So we're pre-Trump era, which may cover some of uh, the differences you may notice. But um, this is an inter-ethnic group of young people. Uh, they were sort of unusually uh, racially mixed in their friendships. They were some from East Africa, some from Arab countries, some from South Asia. And they really got to know each other through this uh, Muslim youth program. Uh, they were age 16 to 21 when I got to know them. And they sort of you know, grew up through high school to college years during those times. So I really got to see them sort of grow up through those years together. Uh, these are working class kids. So sort of income wise, their parents are cab drivers, uh, social workers, daycare workers, not really upper middle class or, or upper class kids. Um, and they were practicing Muslims. So, of course, as we know, people can be Muslim and, and not practicing. Uh, they were pretty religious uh, for their age group. So uh, my field work for this, um, this book took place centrally at something I'm calling the City Mosque, which is a large mosque in a major American city that will remain unnamed. Um, it's a very diverse mosque. It's been there for, since the 1970s and it was a very large mosque in the city. There was a longstanding Muslim youth program at this mosque, which drew a lot of young people from around the city, and parents encouraged their youth to attend. And the youth I spent time with really liked going to this youth program, uh, and I got to know them through that. How did I get access to this mosque? Well, uh, there's a couple reasons. One, um, I'm actually a Muslim convert. So I'm a practicing Muslim myself, which I think was a big part of my getting entree into this group and winning their trust. Um, but I think as important as that actually was the fact that I've been a youth worker for many years and worked with young people of this age in different city neighborhoods. So I sort of knew how to hang out and spend time with this age group in this kind of demographic. So I got to know them at the city mosque, at the youth group. I remember I felt like I was in high school again, trying to get the cool kids to, to like me. And oh, by the way, I should mention, Ethically, we have to sort of ask people, tell people we're doing a study and get their permission. So I was not undercover. Uh, I told them what I was doing. They had to sign all the forms. Everything was above board. And their parents also gave permission for this to, to go forward. They used to joke, however, that I was an FBI agent because I was the only white person in the mosque, always writing things down in a notebook. Um, that became less funny when that actually happened a couple times. But, uh, but at the time, that was sort of a, a way to get in with them, was to make these kind of jokes. And they knew I was Muslim. And I think they trusted me because of that. So I got to know them at the mosque. But of course, we know that people are different in different settings of social life. So I wanted to see them not just in the mosque, but how they would act in other places. So luckily, they did sort of ask me to go to Burger King that one day, which really broke the ice. And then I got to hang out with them in different parts of their social world. So community religious gatherings, like Eid festivals and iftars, 
uh, in their families' homes. I was invited to dinners and got to know their parents and families. Uh, just walking around the neighborhood and different hangouts where they would spend time, cafes, stores, things like that. Uh, so they were really into music. So I should mention, I called them the Legends because they had a sort of hip-hop band called the Legends, which wasn't really a professional group by any stretch, but sort of a hobby. And they would actually record songs and write songs together. So that's why I call them the Legends is the name of the group of friends. And they would spend time in recording studios in the community, uh, in concerts. I would go with them to these. They would perform sometimes, other times watching other performers. Um, also informal uh, youth social gatherings, like going to the beach or movies or things like that. And also driving around in cars, which apparently young people like to do. So we did a lot of that. So I was really almost part of this group. Of course, I wasn't part of the group. It was never, I would never be mistaken for these kids. But they really, sort of, they really sort of took me in and would text me on week and say, hey, what are you doing? Here's what we're doing. Do you want to come? And I would say, yeah, sure, I want to come. So they really became friends uh, as the process happened, which often happens in these sort of long-term ethnographies. So just to put some context around Muslim Americans to give you a sense, Muslims are actually a tiny percentage of the American population, which politically might not seem to be the reality, but it is. They're less than 1%. It's growing, uh, but it's a small, small number. And most Muslims in the US live, work, and go to school with people of different beliefs, behaviors, and religions. And of course, they go to public schools where there's gender mixing. Of course, there's some Muslim students that go to Islamic schools, um, but it's not, a, it's not a large number. It's not a majority. So a major challenge for Muslim people in the US is maintaining, if they want to, a Muslim identity while also being part of American culture. And that's not just about discrimination. It's also about the, the cultural differences between American youth culture and what would be expected of a good Muslim. And that's sort of part of what I'm going to talk about today. So what did I find out? So before I actually went to the site, one thing I assume might be the case is that there's a lot of discrimination and harassment happening with these young people. It wouldn't be surprising. I started only six years after 9-11, and I really thought in my, to myself, there'll probably be a lot of stories of stereotyping, harassment, discrimination. They're probably really struggling with this. And there was some of that. But a good lesson for me was that was only a small part of their lives. And in fact, most of their lives wasn't really about that at all. Most of their day-to-day -day lives is what I uh, term in the book, trying to live a culturally contested life. And what I mean by that is a life where you're trying to balance these expectations of different cultural rubrics, of different cultural schemas. And so I'm going to sort of spell out the definition of this term as I use it in the book, and then sort of go forward with examples from my field notes to sort of illustrate what I'm talking about. So what are people who live culturally contested lives? By the way, it's not just Muslim young people in the US. Many people in social situations are positioned in a, in a way in which they have to sort of balance competing demands for cultural alliances to different groups and different experiences. So culturally contested uh, lives, people who live those kind of lives, are located between two sets of sometimes conflicting cultural expectations. Okay. So on the one hand, obviously for my young people, what does it mean to be a Muslim teenager, a good Muslim? And what does it mean to be an American teenager? That has its own set of expectations, which can be in some ways as normative or demanding as the expectation to being a good Muslim. So how do you do both of those things? Is it possible? Um, what makes this very um, really poignant for people is that often these expectations are tied to certain people in your life that are important to you. So for example, your friends at school may expect certain things of you socially, that you'll be dating, that you'll be listening to certain kinds of music. But on the other hand, your parents and people in your mosque and your Muslim friends may expect different things of you. So it's not just abstract expectations of culture. These are actually tied to groups of people that really matter to you in your life. And so this can get very thorny and very stressful for young people to sort of figure out how to do this, because they don't want to jeopardize these relationships that they have. 
Um, people who live these kind of lives, and I really saw this with the kids in my study, they spent a lot of time and energy thinking about this and trying to figure it out. So whereas I predicted, oh, they'll be talking a lot about discrimination or different things, they really spent a lot of time talking about this and thinking about it. How can we be Muslim and be American? And even when they weren't talking about it consciously, they were sort of doing things, interacting with one another in ways that they were trying to figure this out, figure out solutions to how to do this in a way that felt okay to them and that sort of worked for them. And I think they were actually successful at doing this. I think it's actually a positive story that I have in the book that they can do that. Another thing to mention is that often people in this situation, they actually want to participate in both cultures. Right? We can imagine situations where some people say, forget this being Muslim thing, it's too much of a hassle, there's too many restrictions, I'm just going to be a secular American young person, forget it. And some people do that, and that's a choice you could make. You could also imagine some people and maybe people's parents saying, okay, we're going to keep you at home, we're going to go to a Muslim school, we're going to keep you strictly religious, and we don't want you interacting with any American young people. That can happen as well. But these young people really wanted to do both things. They wanted this to be possible, and they wondered if it could be, given um, the, the challenges here. So I want to sort of set up a model of how I'm sort of theorizing this world that they live in and what do their culturally contested lives look like in this situation. So on the one hand, you have Islamic culture. And as all the students who are here from my Islam in Society class are tired of me saying, say it with me, Islam looks different in different places. OK, so <laughs> there is no one Islam everywhere. What are, the, what are the expectations of a Muslim in this context? right? So at the city mosque in this large American city, what did it mean to be a Muslim? This is what it meant. You should go to the mosque. You should fast for Ramadan. You should avoid drugs and alcohol. You should identify as a Muslim. You should be proud to tell people at school that you are a Muslim. This is what people wanted you to say who were at the mosque. You should engage in pop culture, but halal pop culture. You can watch the Disney Channel. You can listen to some kinds of music, right? They, these guys knew the Disney Channel inside and out. Um, the, uh, you, should part you should do your ritual obligations. You need to do your prayers, of course. You need to read your Quran. You need to know your Hadith. And you need to, if you're going to have any kind of premarital relationship, it has to be with the permission of your parents. It has to not involve physical intimacy. And it has to be with the intention of marriage. Okay, So this is Islamic courtship. This is what leaders at the mosque said to these young people was expected of them. And what their friends expected of them as well. On the other side, we have American youth culture, right? which in this context includes things like skateboarding. Uh, basketball, video games, knowing about fashion. These were some fashionable kids. I could not hang, seriously. I really, the skinny jeans were just too much. Um, multiculturalism, knowing different, different kinds of people from different backgrounds at your very diverse American public schools. Eating a lot of fast food. I did actually gain some weight during this project. Um, going to parties and listening to hip hop music, which was incredibly popular during the time of the study and of course still is. Um, Individualism, so this is a more abstract idea, but really as an American person and as an American young person, you're really expected to be able to do what you want when you want. This is what teenagers are starting to find out when they become teenagers. And this is what American culture really expects of its subjects, to be able to do what you want when you want to do it and really prioritize your needs and your autonomy and your self-actualization. Um, and one other thing, of course, is dating. Dating is an expectation. Kids at school are talking about dating. People in the US have multiple relationships before marriage. That's expected. So this is something else that was happening. So as you can see, and I want to make clear, this is not a clash of cultures. right? This is not a clash of civilizations. A lot of these things don't conflict with each other at all. You can be a skateboarder and fast for Ramadan. There's really no issue there. Not only that, these people would actually skate to the mosque to have their iftar regularly. So that wasn't weird at all. But on the other hand, there are some areas where things are in tension. And I want to focus on three, which are really at the core of my book. On the one hand, you've got hip hop music. 
These kids loved hip-hop music. It was, they, they ate it for breakfast. They listened to it all day. On the other hand, and this makes you cool among your schoolmates and among your friends, hip-hop music really meant something to them. On the other hand, um, hip-hop music, of course, has elements that are not halal in content. Much hip-hop music is referring to sex, referring to drugs and alcohol, talking about things that are inappropriate as a Muslim. So how do you, how do you balance that out? Um, the second central conflict was this thing about ritual obligations, such as prayer, things that you're supposed to do at certain times of day when it is supposed to happen, not when you want to do it. And of course, that can conflict with an American idea of doing what you want when you want, being a free, independent person. So this is another tension I saw them sort of wrestling with. The third one is about Islamic courtship and dating, right? American expectations of dating versus how your parents and people at the mosque think you should go about this. Um, this. These are sort of the three central tensions that I saw happening, and this is what the book is mostly about. Now, there is a chapter about discrimination, and that was going on, um, but that was sort of a side thing in their lives and what they were worried about um, in day-to-day. -day. So I'm going to sort of go through each of these, what I call sort of dilemmas, cultural dilemmas, one at a time and show you sort of how these young people dealt with it and what it can teach us about how perhaps a kind of a Muslim American identity is forming with these young people. So the first dilemma, the hip-hop fan good Muslim dilemma. How do you do this, right? Hip-hop music, as we know, much popular hip-hop has references to profane language, drugs and alcohol, and talks a lot about sex, physical intimacy, things like this. On the other hand, good young Muslims in the mosque setting are supposed to refrain from profane language, drugs and alcohol, and physical intimacy. How do you deal with that? How can you be an involved hip-hop fan and a good Muslim? Is that even possible, right? And so I watched as these kids sort of, sort of figured it out and did it. So I identified what I call these three listening practices. Basically, what did they actually do to be able to sort of walk this line? And I'll outline them for you here and go into some in more detail than others. Number one, and listening practice is a term I um, took from the sociologist Tia Denora. How do you listen to music? The way they actually listened to and interacted with music is how they solved the problem. Okay, Islamic listening is number one. Now, they didn't call it this. This is me being a sociologist, right? This is Islamic listening. But what it is is it's applying religious rules to how you listen to your music, right? So what do you do in the daily life? Well, when a word comes on that's inappropriate, turn your phone down for a second, then turn it back up really quick, right? <laughs> know these songs super well, so when something wrong comes on, you either say something over it or turn it down and up or turn it off, right? That takes knowing the song, which makes you look cool, but also turning it off, which makes you an okay Muslim at the moment, right? Number two, altering bodily motions in the mosque. Repeatedly, somebody would have headphones on and started dancing, and someone else says, oh, there's no dancing in the mosque, brother. So cool your friend down, monitor your behavior, make it mellow, and you can get by okay. Help each other out, right? Help each other be both hip-hop fans and good Muslims. And one of my favorites, create Islamic versions of popular songs. So take songs to which the content was most often quite inappropriate, and strip all those lyrics out and put in some Islamically appropriate lyrics. My favorite version being a Snoop Dogg song called Sensual Seduction, which is clearly inappropriate, becomes spiritual connection. <laughs> Somehow it's now fine. Again, you're showing your knowledge of the inappropriate thing, but you're also swapping it out and showing that you know how to play this game and be a good Muslim, right? Okay, second um, thing is called pivoting away from piety. You know, this takes advantage of the sort of resources that hip hop provides for a sense of danger and inappropriateness, right? How do you refer to that without getting into too much trouble? 
So what they did all the time was quickly in the mosque make a reference to a song, make a reference to an inappropriate song, and then just quickly jump out of it, right? So they're sort of signaling to their friends, I know this kind of stuff, even though I'm not really doing it, right? And the beauty of music, and teenagers have used music forever for this purpose, is that it refers to things, but you don't actually have to be doing the thing that the song is saying, you just know the song, right? So you're sort of three steps removed from the actual behavior, but you somehow get the coolness of knowing about it, right? So they would do this at the mosque all the time and often sort of make jokes off of Islamic terminology, right? So for example, al-Bukhari, of course, is a scholar of the Hadith, during a session, someone says, did you say Bacardi? Which, of course, is a kind of rum that's often referred to in rap songs, right? Um, turning the word seer, which means life of the prophet, walking out of the mosque and then saying the word Serena, which is a name that goes into a Kanye West verse, okay? And then this idea, just as an idea, no one actually did it, of turning the motion to prayer into a funky dance move and then quickly stopping realizing that would be inappropriate, right? But signaling to one another that we know about this culture, we know about this hip-hop culture, even though we're not actually doing these things. Okay, now what I'm gonna get a little more into is one I call listening like a cool Muslim. And what this is about is really finding religious Islam within within hip-hop, okay, within popular culture. And American hip-hop provides this resource because so many rappers, mostly African-American rappers are either Muslim themselves or no Muslim culture. So a fun sort of game they would play is try to listen to a song and try to find that one part of the Quran that's in there, right? Or that one Islamic reference that's in there. And if you can find that in a popular song, they would celebrate it together and get excited about it, okay? So I'm gonna tell you a story. One day we were sitting, um, again, fast food, sitting across from the mosque, eating some burgers and talking about hip hop and they were talking about their favorite rappers. So who's your top three MCs, right? So we walk out of the, out of the fast food place and, and the conversation continues. Who's your favorite rapper? And this is what happened. We start walking out the door and back onto the street. Abdul says, Talib Kweli is one of my favorites. He's good. And I tell them, trying to be cool, I saw Mostef and Talib Kweli perform one time as Black Star. Really, they say? Muhammad says, what songs did they do? I can't remember, I say, it was a while ago. Abdul asks, did they do that song, Definition? I'm not sure, I say. They did the one about black is the, Muhammad picks up the line and starts reciting the rap. Black is the color of my true love's hair. By the next line, all three of them are rapping together. Black is the veil that the Musliminas wear. That's tight, Abdul says. Okay, so we can see here there's a shared identification in the music. When you link onto a Muslim reference in a hip hop song, everybody is on it and they're excited about it, right? And they're, and they're rapping it together. And so this would happen all the time. Now it's not just any mention of Islam in hip hop because by the way, they were quite discerning of which rappers they knew said were Muslim, but then they saw them drinking in a video, right? So they were really, they were really on this. But they always liked a representation of something about Muslim piety, about really being religious, right? So the call to prayer or a black hijab, right? That's something that they really latched onto and would celebrate because it's both religious, but it's within a context that feels cool, within a hip hop song. Now, what they did not like was rap that was only Islamic, right? And this is where it gets tricky because there are Islamic religious rappers who think, oh, this is perfect for these guys. No, didn't like it. Why didn't they like it? Because it is not cool to be too religious. Okay, and this is something that scholars of religion have talked about in America, that as a young person, even if you are objectively religious, it is clearly not cool in America to be too religious. So you, even if you are religious, you have to sort of seem a little bit less religious. And so what they would do is make fun of people who are more religious than them. This is a surefire way to seem less religious and a little bit more cool. So anybody who memorized the Quran overnight or say prayers on time all the time or whatever, they would make fun of them. Now, of course, compared to other people, they're quite religious, right? But making fun of more religious people than you makes you feel a little bit cooler. 
Who they really made fun of a lot was Muslim musicians who only sang about religious topics. For some reason, these people got a lot of, got a lot of, um, of, of stuff from them. So they were boring, they were cheesy, they were whack. Right? So to give you an example, I went to a concert with them where the well-known Islamic musician Sami Yusuf was performing. And because these guys were musicians, I said, hey, why don't you guys give them a demo? Why don't you guys give Sami Yusuf one of your tapes, one of your CDs? And they said, well, this is what happened. We eat our lunches. I overhear Muhammad talking to Yasser about a song they were working on called This Is How We Pray. Hey, I say to them, you should give Sami Yusuf a demo. Man, what's he going to do, says Muhammad? He probably can't get us on his label. We'll probably give it to him, and he'll say, my label is Allah. The other guys laugh. Okay, so being too religious won't cut it. Purely Islamic music will not cut it. It has to be a reference to Islam within a mostly non-Islamic secular hip-hop framework, right? That's what you want. That's sort of your right, your sweet spot where you can feel both cool and Muslim. Okay, that's what they were looking for. And that's what they did find by doing this thing. And they create something that I call my book, Cool Piety, right? How can you be religious and cool, at least to each other and to their friends? They were. Okay, the second dilemma, even thornier, the teen Muslim relationship dilemma. Okay, how are we gonna do this one? Um, American relationships, people have multiple relationships before they get married. They often involve physical intimacy of some kind. They spend time alone together. These are decisions made separate from your family and on your own and things that you decide to do. Now, locally Islamic courtship, as the leaders of the mosque would tell them and their parents would tell them, involves you have to have the intention of marriage. There should be no physical intimacy. You should not spend time alone together because the third person in the room is? Shaitan, thank you, the devil. Um, and it should have knowledge of your family, okay? So your family should know what's gonna happen and be involved in these decisions, right? How do you solve this? Everybody at school is dating. It's an expectation. It's, we're seeing it all obviously in music, TV, and everything else. How do you do this? So what I saw over time, and by the way, this subject didn't come up for a good two years because it's quite sensitive. It took them a long time to open up to me about this. Um, because it's something that's very under wraps and very a sensitive topic. But what I really saw in seeing these guys is that there were sort of two ways of dealing with this, two models of dating that were sort of emerging that I saw over time, and I sort of give them two different names. So one is called keeping it halal, which they actually called it, and the other is called dating while Muslim. So here's the difference. So one group of kids did one and one did the other. So keeping it halal involves you're really trying to do this in an Islamically appropriate way, right? You're trying to reconcile Islam with an American-style relationship. You actually call the relationship halal, and you actually set explicit limits on physical intimacy. We are doing this in an Islamically appropriate way, okay? That's one model, and I'll give examples of these more. A second model is called dating while Muslim, which is sort of like we're dating and we're sort of Muslim over here a little bit. So Islam is actually still involved, but you're not trying to actually make this fit together. You're not trying to make it a religiously appropriate relationship. In fact, you're just not really talking about that part of it. Although on the other hand, what's interesting is these relationships often had sort of elements that were still implicitly sort of traditional and Islamic. Like people would meet um, partners' parents and people would talk about religion. And so it had elements of Islam, but it wasn't trying to declare itself that way in a very overt way. Um, also part of these relationships were uses of the terms halal and haram about the relationship, but in quite ambiguous ways that always sort of avoided pinning down exactly what was on the side of what you could do or not do, which I think was sort of intentional to keep that a little bit vague. Um, so I'll give some examples of these uh, and then um, talk more about it. Okay, so sorry. So keeping it halal, my example for that is a guy named Yusuf, who was, uh, his nickname was the Imam because he always prayed on time. He was like the most religious uh, of the group. He was an older brother. Um, 
And I was riding with him one day in his car. I met him after a dream of prayer one Friday, and I was going to give him a ride to his uh, ice cream parlor where he worked. And we started driving out of the city and getting into the suburbs. And it was sort of, he, he, I could tell he was getting more relaxed. And he had put on some, uh, who did he put on? Like some, he said some kind of emo music. Anyway, he's rolling the windows down. And then he said this. One day this girl called me and she said that she liked me, you know. And I was like, whoa, I need to control myself. I told her that I liked her too because I did and she's Muslim. But I told her that I wasn't interested in a relationship with kissing or hugging or anything like that. I just wanted to, you know, keep it halal. That's what we say. And she said that she was fine with that. That's what she wanted too. So we hung out all the time. So this is an example of a keep it in halal relationship. The partners are actually calling it halal. We're going to do this and we're going to set limits on this. We're not going to have kissing and hugging. We're going to be very specific about what we're not doing. Um, and this is what was really attractive to these young people. Now, of course, it didn't always work out this way, but there's something attractive about the idea that there's a clarity to it. We know what to expect. We know what the rules are, and we're doing this together, and maybe it will work. Maybe there's a way we can do this in an Islamically appropriate way. So there were young people who really wanted to do this kind of, of, of model and really tried it. Um, so that was one mode, and I'll talk about sort of outcomes of these modes a little bit later. The second one uh, I was talking about is dating while Muslim. And there's a couple elements of this one I want to talk about. So these were people who never said this is a halal relationship. They would never have said that. In fact, they made fun of the people who said it was a halal relationship. <laughs> In fact, when I would ask them about the other people, they would say, oh, yeah, he has a halal relationship. I don't think they even give each other a high five. So they would sort of make fun of those people. But on the other hand, they were still sticking to some kind of Islamic rules. They just weren't calling it that. They weren't calling attention to it as Islamic. Right, which sort of puts more pressure on. But one thing they were doing was using the terms halal and haram in very ambiguous ways. So I have an example of that. So they were using religious terminology in a sense, but not really pinning down what they meant. So well, one day I saw this kind of usage as I walked out of the back door of the mosque into the, the, the back um, sort of playground where kids were sitting on the bleachers. And two kids, Tariq and Fuad, who were both 16 at the time, were talking to an older kid named Mustafa, who was sort of dispensing all his uh, dating wisdom to these younger kids. Uh, Mustafa says, I mean, the thing about relationships is I think it's only the business of the people in the relationship, you know? I nod, as if he's teaching me something. <laughs> Mustafa says, you can have a relationship, it's fine, as long as you don't do anything that isn't haram, you know? The boys nod. Tariq says, as long as you have the intention to marry the person, it's okay, right? Mustafa nods. As long as you do it in the right way, you know? You have your homies around, your friends. You don't be just alone with just that person. He gestures to an invisible person next to him. So nothing happens, you know? Fouad says, as if checking his own behavior against this criteria, yeah, Abdul's always with us, so... And her older sister's always with us, too. Tarek asks, what if her homies are with you, too? Her homies, Mustafa asks, yeah, that's okay, too. He continues, as long as you don't do anything that it says in the Quran not to do, it's okay to have relationships. So two interesting things about this um, interaction, I would say. One is they're talking religious language in a sense. So we're talking about the Quran. We're talking about halal and haram. But at the very same time, there are absolutely no specifics given about what is over that line of haram or halal. Right? There's a lot of sort of ambiguous pronouns like don't do anything that isn't halal or don't do anything that says in the Quran not to do. And so in this way, any particular behaviors are left unnamed and therefore unevaluated. We don't have to be held to account for, did we do this or that with this person we're dating because we didn't say whether it was okay or not. Um, and so I think that was a useful way to feel like we're, 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 still, we're still Muslim. We're still trying to work this out, but we're not trying to sort of back ourselves into a corner here with exactly what we can do or not do. And that was sort of the dating while Muslim um, model. So another, another thing I want to mention about dating while Muslim that I think is interesting is while the um, keeping it halal really had Islamic language at the center of it. So 
people were talking about halal behavior and using a lot of terminology to sort of dictate the relationship. So it wasn't just Islamic language, it was Islamic rules sort of that were binding how the relationship would take place. Now with Dating While Muslim, Islam was relevant. It wasn't that people were saying we're, we're, we're a different person. You hear this a lot about these kind of stories like compartmentalization. Over here I'm Muslim, over here I'm doing this other thing. And there are obviously young people who do it that way. This was not what was happening here. These guys wanted to be Muslims and they wanted to keep Islam in their life, but they also wanted to be able to date. So could they do that? So one way they did that was to keep Islamic language and ideas relevant, part of the relationship, but not dominant, right? So they're not, we're not gonna have rules about dating that are Islamic, but we are gonna make references to Islam as we hang out together. This is part of what we do, right? And so uh, one kid who sort of exemplified this was named Abdul, and on one uh, unforgettable evening, I actually joined these guys. It was like me and four guys in like an SUV that one of them had driving to visit this young woman who one of them liked, and I was going with them on this meeting for, because I was the ethnographer, of course. And, um, <laughs> And, we, and of course, her parents are home, so this is all, so her parents are like, yes, these young men come over and we'll all have tea together and we'll talk and it'll be legit. And so, uh, but then I walk in and they're like, who, who are you, basically? Um, and I was luckily volunteering at the mosque, so that was cool, I was volunteering at the mosque. And I actually said I was doing this project and everything like that. Um, Anyway, so I got to sort of see and then hear about this. And in fact, I, I had to leave, actually, knowing I had to leave early. I didn't stay with this. But later, I asked them what happened. And, uh, and they said they sat on these couches. They were nervously waiting for the parents to come. The parents were in the, in the house. Um, they were going to meet the father. It was this big thing. And by the way, this young man insisted on meeting this woman's father. Okay, So he wanted this to be sort of like legit in a certain way. Um, but here's what happened while they were waiting for the parents to come. And I asked him, what was it like? What happened? And he said, I was really nervous because I've never met a girlfriend's parents or the parents of a girl I was talking to. It was just awkward. Then Muhammad was cracking some jokes. Then it was quiet for a while. You know, I was uncomfortable, so I was very quiet. Then our older sister, Salah, put glee on the TV. And I was thinking, oh, I really don't like this show. I hate it, actually. He laughs. Then what happened? You know what they're singing on glee? The thong song. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. So then it felt more awkward and everyone was being quiet. So I said... Astaghfirullah, God forgive us. Really, Abdul? Yeah, and her sister laughed and she laughed and everyone laughed, it sort of broke the ice. Why do you think you said that? I felt like I had to say something. I had to be cool with everyone, you know? You do something with religion if you'll accept it, something you can relate to. So I feel like this is really important because it's showing that he wanted to, he wants to be a Muslim, right? He is a Muslim. He's using a Muslim uh, term and something that's a sort of an in-Muslim joke to sort of bring people together. But he's not trying to say, I'm gonna have the whole relationship be dictated by Islamic rules, right? It, th those aren't necessarily the same thing. So I think it's an important distinction to say that these kids, and by the way, all the people they were trying to have relationships with, not all that, or a ton of them, the people they were, were Muslim, right? So these are, this is happening with other Muslim young people. And so in that way, it becomes sort of like a joint project. Can we do this together? Can we do this in a way that's Muslim without feeling too stressed out about it? And so that gets to this sort of outcomes thing uh, of how these things would play out. So the keeping in halal relationships that I watched sort of unfold, uh, and I more heard about it than watched it before you get too creeped out, um, <laughs> these are the ones that really try to integrate these things. It's Islamic and American, and we really want to apply these rules. And it's also a visible project. People knew about these relationships, these halal ones, at least other kids knew about them. Um, it was really stressful. 
right? Um, there was often a sense of failed expectations and a lot of stress and guilt because you'd set yourself up for expectation of being sort of religiously pure within this kind of arrangement that was very hard to maintain, especially because of the pressure of peers and also just, of course, your own temptations at this age. It's very hard to do. So a lot of people would end up breaking up, getting frustrated, um, really, be, really being psychologically stressed out by this. And it, it also could drive one away from religion. It didn't in the, in the, in the sense that I saw, in the examples I saw. But you could see how this, this could really push people away because it's such a stressful experience, uh, even though the, the intentions were so sincere at the beginning. And, and dating, while Muslim, on the other hand, was a little more low key, right? Um, it had some Islamic elements, but it wasn't trying to be rule-bound um, very strictly, and it was more of an ongoing navigation. The people I saw do this, it was almost like a shared experience where you're trying with your partner to actually sort of figure this out in a way and learn from each other. So there was less a sense of guilt, and you did still feel Muslim because this partner was Muslim, you were, you were Muslim together, and you were trying to do this in a way that was relevant and, and culturally relevant. So people did feel American and Muslim. Now there's no clear solution to this problem, right? But the point I wanna make is that these people are trying to figure it out. It's really on their minds. It's really central to being a young person how to do this. And so it's just something that really, um, really was, was very salient in their daily lives. And often, actually, people would sort of migrate. So Yusuf, the, the imam, actually migrated to more of a dating while Muslim model by the end of my time there because it was just less stressful, right? So this is sort of like how it played out uh, as I saw it. OK, third thing I'm going to talk about um, is this tension between Islamic obligation or ritual, mostly prayer, and sort of being an individual, autonomous, free person, right? And as I said at the beginning of the talk, uh, individualism is a very American cultural uh, value, right? Something that is, as an American, you're supposed to have autonomy over your actions, freedom to follow your desires, uh, and an emphasis on doing things yourself, that your individual effort made something happen. It wasn't really a communal thing, but it's very individual. Now, of course, uh, ritual expectations of Islam are quite different. They come from an external authority, meaning, of course, God, maybe your parents, maybe religious leaders, but it is rare that you yourself had the idea that I should pray at this specific time, right? These are things that are told to you to do. Uh, ritual commitments and required behaviors that are sort of rules of being a good Muslim are sort of put upon you, so it doesn't feel like you're necessarily choosing that, right? So how do you do this? How do you meet these requirements that you're supposed to do to be a good Muslim and also feel like you're being an independent, free young person, which you're supposed to be and seem like to your friends and yourself? So that was sort of the third challenge that I write about. Um, and the way they did this was they would actually, I, I use the word encasing, they would actually do Islamic practices, but as they were doing them, use language or action that sort of signaled individualism. So how do you do an Islamic practice but show that you're still a free individual person as you're doing it, right? That's what they did. And there was a couple ways they did it. The first way is when they would talk about prayer, when they would talk about um, fasting and things they did, they would say it in a very individualistic way that sort of celebrated their own achievement at doing it, right? Even in the cadence they would use and the way they would say, so I'll give you some examples about prayer, things like, I say my prayers, right? Like I do it, I'm handling it, right? Or fasting on a hot day. Someone said, oh, I can't really do that. You just have to know how to do it, right? It's about you. You can just learn how to do it and master it, right? It's an individual thing, not a collective sort of responsibility thing. And one of my favorite examples, they went to some party they told me about, and they were like, oh, there was alcohol, but we brought Coke. And we were like, we brought our own drinks, homie, when they entered the party, holding up their like seven up or whatever. So they're sort of claiming in some kind of celebratory individualistic way, these essentially 
externally impose rules, right? So these rules were not rules they chose, but to talk about them in ways that make them seem individualistic made it feel a little bit easier, and I think maybe even fun in some ways when you're doing it with your friends to do this kind of thing, right? Um, another example that I'm gonna get a little more into is controlling the way that you do these things. So the way that you pray. Can you pray in a way that feels more individualistic, that feels more free than something you have to do at a certain time? And so I wanna sort of tell you about one sort of vignette from my research that shows me, I think, how they were able to do this. Um, so again, it's about sort of cloaking or encasing Islamic requirements in individualistic action and language. So this one is about sort of when you start praying, okay? And so I wanna set up this by telling you that in American mosques, uh, the big day for congregations to get together is really Sunday. So Friday, of course, is Jummah still. It's Friday is Jummah prayer, and people take off work and go to Jummah and then go back to work if they're working. But Sunday, at least at this mosque, was a day when a lot of things were happening. And this is something that sociologists have a fancy word for that I forget, which is about adopting the practices of other kind of denominations, right? So just like churches are on Sunday, uh, at the mosque is when you have your classes, you have your Sunday school you, you learn your Quran, uh, and everyone's there hanging out. So when the afternoon prayer is called, a lot of people are praying together. So it's almost like a Jummah prayer. It's a lot of people, okay? So right before the Sunday afternoon prayer starts, there's a lot of people in the mosque, and what that means is everyone is watching if everyone else is going to pray, right? So you sort of need to do it, and it's all happening together. So I'm going to sort of read a little bit from the book to set the scene for what this is like. Right before the Sunday afternoon call to prayer, the Muslim youth program was usually wrapping up its meeting in the second floor youth room, while parents were generally arriving in the main lobby to pick up their children from Sunday school classes, and older youth were setting up the snack bar in the social hall for their weekly fundraiser. Suddenly, a man's amplified voice could be heard from every corner of the building, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. A collective pause of quiet hesitation would immediately be followed by a burst of purposeful movement. Men and women would stop their conversations or other activities and start walking toward the prayer hall. Others would move toward the bathroom to form the obligatory wudu before prayer. Religious director Omar and a few other mosque officials would walk to the front of the prayer hall to prepare to lead the ritual. Inside and around the youth group room upstairs, youth group leaders and other adults would encourage youth to get ready for prayer, saying versions of the following. Come on, guys, it's time for prayer. Don't miss prayer, you guys, or go or you'll miss the whole prayer. As can be seen in this sudden redirection of group attention and movement, communal pressure among the mosque membership strongly encouraged Muslims not only to pray, but to pray on time. The urgency with which the adults told youth to pray and with which most adults prepared for the prayer was testament to the local priority of responding to the call to prayer in a timely fashion. So in my initial visits to the city mosque, before I even really knew the legends, I also got caught up in this collective post-Adan energy and moved to prepare for prayer as rapidly as possible. After hearing the call to prayer, I would briskly walk to the bathroom to perform ritual ablution if necessary or move directly to the prayer hall. As my fieldwork came to focus more on the legends, though, I increasingly found myself hanging out with them when the prayer to call happened, and I started to notice something, a repeated pattern, that their response, or lack of response to the call to prayer, had a distinct and repeated style. A scene that took place immediately following the call to prayer one Sunday can serve to illustrate the boy's usual response. So the call to prayer sounds, and this happens. I walk into the youth room and see that Miss Habib is there. She tells the boys, it's time for Zohar. Youth group leader Shazi asks the group, are you guys all going down to pray? None of them really respond to her. Muhammad and Yusuf keep chatting. Hazim throws a tennis ball against the back wall of the youth room. Fuad runs after it. I go downstairs and grow ready to pray. 
I go in to pray and stand to the left of Yusuf and to the right of an East Asian-looking guy who I don't know. As I walk out of prayer, I see Muhammad, Abdul, Fuad, and Abshir sitting at the back of the prayer hall. So they did make it to prayers after all. So this scenario was typical. Even though the legends are literally surrounded by everybody getting ready to pray and constantly being reminded, I never saw them once in three and a half years get up right away and go pray. Even though they almost always made it to the prayer eventually, they would all engage in a visible non-response to the call to prayer or any adult please, and then would use the time between the call to prayer and the recitation of the prayer, which is usually about 20 minutes, to do anything but preparing to pray. They would continue conversations, go to the bathroom, sit down to rest, explore different parts of the mosque and look for their friends, go back outside to briefly play basketball, find something to eat, or play with their iPhones. If they were approached by adults reminding them that it was time to get ready to pray, they would marshal a range of excuses to avoid doing so, including a need to go to the bathroom or get something, a sense of dizziness, being busy with something else, or needing to wait for someone. This concentrated burst of activity designed to avoid moving toward the prayer hall before they absolutely had to served as a means of tempering what was a powerfully normative and public religious obligation with a brief interlude of autonomous action. So they could really show each other that we're going to do this, but we're not going to do it right when we're supposed to do it, right? Typical teenager in some way, but also they would always get there, right? But they would get there on their own time, and that was important to them. Now, of course, delaying prayer can always be, also be a way of evading prayer altogether, and it's not like they never skipped prayer. They sometimes did. But all in all, their attempts to control when they prayed wasn't really aimed at moving away from religion and towards greater autonomy, but was reflection of their desire to experience and demonstrate personal autonomy in the midst of normative religious practice. So how can we show each other and ourselves that we still have control? We're still doing our own thing, even though we have to do this other thing. Um, and so this was something that happened a lot. And there's another story I want to just tell um, before I sort of give a conclusion here, which is about uh, one day. So, so sometimes this would, this would conflict with the way adults wanted them to pray, right? There were often examples of them praying on their own, in their own little group, that they liked more than praying with the adults. But the adults didn't like it that much. So one day, uh, I came into the mosque, and the kids really wanted to go to the sports store to buy a new basketball. And they wanted me to drive them. I was often the driver. That was one of my roles. So I drove them to the store. We came back. I'm sorry, we were going to go out to drive, and we were stopped by one of the kids' fathers who says, I think it's about to be prayer time. And the kids say, oh, no, 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 it's not, it's not, it's not. Of course, the azan comes right then. I'm like, okay, fine. So it is prayer time. So there's no getting out of that for the kids. So we go back in. We pray. Actually, no, so we're getting ready to pray. The adults are sort of talking to each other. The young people say, okay, let's just start. I think it's time to start. Let's start. So they started. They prayed on their own. They finished. And then the adults hadn't even started yet. And they said, what, what are you doing? Why did you pray already? And they said, well, we thought it was time. And they said, no, yeah, we have to pray together. Why did you or start? And there was almost like a, not a fight, but it was a real strong argument. And then one of the fathers says, why are you praying by yourself? That's the American prayer. Okay? And, uh, and, and, so, and, so, one of the, and so he says that again. And then later I'm talking to the, and so then there's a sort of back and forth. Like, well, we have an American flag out front. Aren't we in America? You know, so there's this really intense discussion. Then afterwards I asked the, 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 the guy's uh, son, what was he talking about? He said, oh, he always says that when you pray by yourself. That's the American prayer. Okay, so there's really this tension here that they're trying to work on, but it's, it's, it's tough that if you do something that seems, even if you're still praying, even if you're still doing what you're supposed to do, if it seems too much like you're doing it on your own, it can seem in conflict um, with, with the tradition, with the community. So sort of to sort of recap here what I've done, 
uh, tried to show how these kids are living these culturally contested lives, where everything is not a clash. These are not cultures that cannot coexist. If anything, I think my book is showing that in certain contexts, they clearly can coexist, and they are coexisting. And these kids are already doing it, basically. So it's just a matter of how do you do it. And, but there are tension points. There are moments of tension like there are in everybody's lives. And how do you solve those? And for them, these tensions are around music, uh, around this ritual and individualism, and around dating. Um, and so how did they solve these problems? Well, there were sort of three major ways they did it. You can listen to hip-hop music in ways that fit with Islamic standards of behavior and identity, that support your identity, that don't challenge it. Now, of course, this relies a bit, which I'll talk to later, about having grown-ups around who will allow you to do some of this, right? Who don't get quite upset if you listen to any music at all, but are open to it. Uh, number two, try to find ways of having teenage relationships that are so meaningful for you um, that are halal and Islamic. And one of the things I learned from, from watching these kids is how much teenage relationships are really not about physical stuff, right? <laughs> but about getting to know someone and really caring about someone. And so to be able, they want to be able to do that, but can they do that in a way that, that is Islamic, that is appropriate? Can, can they figure it out? Um, and number three, practice Islam in a way that emphasizes autonomy and individualism. They want to feel like they're like all teenagers, right, who are growing up. They're their own people. They're becoming their own people. But they also want to um, have allegiance to their religion and do what they should be doing. So people often ask me, so, okay, this is one sort of setting in one site. And clearly, it wouldn't be the same everywhere, and it wouldn't. And so I try to sort of sketch out what are the conditions that I think made this possible at the mosque I was at. And why did this work for these kids? And I think these are some of the reasons it worked. Number one, as I mentioned before, there were adults around who maintained an openness and understanding to these kids without having harsh punishment. So the first sign of music or the first sign of something like this didn't, um, didn't get clamped down on by these adults. Right? Uh, they, they were open to it. They listened to what the young people were saying, and they tried to work with them to find ways that this could work out. Number two, having close friends around you who are going through the same thing. So I think the reason why this worked in part is because they had each other. They would talk through these things with one another all the time. Here's someone who's in the exact same social position that I'm in. And they could, even if they weren't talking about it, they were sort of helping each other through it. And so I think that made a big difference. And three, and this might seem like a sort of a mundane point, but actually having a physical space where you could actually work out and talk about these things. Um, there's a lot of writing by sociologists of migration about how when people coming to a new place have some kind of physical space, churches have often played this role in the US, um, places where they can gather and just talk and just figure this stuff out. How are you adapting to this? How are you working this out? Um, and so having that is really important as well. Um, and just before I wrap up, one other thing people ask me, and I don't really have great answers on this, but I'm in the q and I'd love to hear it, is sort of, does this relate to the UAE, right? Are there similarities? And I can tell you that a lot of the students in my classes say, yes, there are some similarities to this. And this might not just be an American phenomenon, but a kind of global culture balancing that with sort of uh, Islamic um, culture phenomenon. And so one just to, to briefly mention, you know, my students even think there are some of these same challenges here. One difference, of course, is that Muslim culture and religion is more dominant in the UAE, so there might be less fear of sort of losing young people to Islam, it's more part of your family and community here. But there is similarity that young people here are exposed to global and often Western culture and have to figure out these, some of these tensions, especially during teen years, right? Teen years are when everyone's going through the sort of identity challenges and identity work. And so that's why it's a time when these things are happening. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.